there's research out there now showing yeah. direct links between pesticide use with, among farmers and depression. And when you look at, at farmers are now killing themselves in, in, in the U.S. at almost two times the rate of the average American. So yeah, there, there's a direct link and there's more to it, financial situations and family and all lots of things have snowballed on farmers, but we, we have to understand that the chemicals are part of the problem also. I turned 50 y'all and I started a podcast. Really age is just a number. It comes down to how we choose to live and the choices we make in our life and those things accumulate. Don't let the programming of life keep you from doing things every single day that, that make you happy. When we feel good, it's easy to think good. Life is not happening to you. You are your life. You are happening to your life. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm joined by Gail Fuller and Lynette Miller, who are regenerative farmers um, on Circle 7 Farms in Severy, Kansas. That's also the home of Fuller Field School, which I'm really excited to talk to them about what they do there. And um, welcome, both of you, to the podcast today. Thank you. Welcome. Glad to be here. I'd like to go ahead and get started. And um, the th one of the phrases I saw on your website that um, really stuck out to me, and I would love for you to speak to this, which is a quote from you, Gail, um, that says, soil is the answer. What is the question? And uh, I'd love for you to just talk about that a little bit and what that means for you. Sure. Uh, I don't know. I, I first said that probably five or more years ago. And as, as I was on my journey and just realizing the implications of healthy soil and, and what we've done to the environment and the climate and socially as we've degraded our farms and our soils. And, and the more I thought about it, I couldn't find a single issue facing mankind that we couldn't fix with healthy soil. And so I started posing the question on our farm tours uh, to, and these would be mostly, um, city people, customers, or young couples wanting to start a farm, but, you know, mostly non-farming people, but it was, it was a good mix. And so I'd pose them the question as we started each farm tour, I'd pose this question to them. So is the answer, what is the question? And I'd ask them to give me what keeps you awake at night, professionally, personally, financially, whatever it is, and I can fix it with healthy soil. And I have yet to have anybody ask me or give me, you know, something troubling that, that we can't solve just by by fixing the soil. You know, I think this is so beautiful and I and I think it sums up exactly just the core, you know, the core of this whole idea of of what you're trying to do. Um but it also is really what brought me to this space. I mean, I have zero background in farming. You know, my background is more of um integrative medicine, naturopathic medicine. So a lot of experience on kind of the nutrition side and learning about really the, the lack of nutrients in our food supply and, and how that can be a cause and a contributor, I should say, to, um, you know, disease and just problematic situations and not to mention the climate and just, it's, you know, this whole interconnectivity and, and when when you look out on the problems of the world, as you're saying, any problem you can think of, it can be so overwhelming to try to imagine how we can have a positive effect and, you know, managing the future of the health of our planet. 
but I, I agree with you that, that soil is the answer and that, that we can begin and end in the soil. And so I, I, that's one of the reasons why I'm so, I mean, I'm so excited to talk to you guys today. And I just think that's a beautiful way, you know, to sum it up. So I, let's just go back and tell me a little bit about the history. I'm, you've been a farmer for, you guys have been farmers for, I'm sure, decades and didn't start out, I'm assuming, as regenerative farmers. So can you take me through kind of your history, how you started and how you changed over to regenerative farming? Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I grew up on a family farm. It was probably a fairly typical family farm for Kansas in the 70s. Uh, we weren't we weren't real big. Um, it, probably what most people would think of if they thought about a family farm, you know, Mom, dad, two boys, my one set of grandparents lived on the farm in another house. You know, we had three gardens. We had chickens and pigs and cattle and grew six or seven different crops. Uh, but, you know, as, as I aged and also, you know, we had a huge turning point in the early mid 70s. Uh, I think it was during the Nixon administration when uh, Secretary of Agro Butts, you know, called on farmers to to feed the world, to go big or go home, to get become specialist. And I, I was young at that point, but, you know, I saw the changes in, on our farm through the 70s and into the 80s. And of course, 80s, we had the major financial uh, debacle where many farmers went broke, which made it easier for those that survived to get bigger. Uh, and so that, that was kind of our journey. We you know, we were mostly organic when I was a kid because pesticides were just, they were kind of the new thing at the time. And up, you know, up until World War II, there was no pesticides mm -hmm. used in farming, really. And that all happened in the 50s. Uh, but as, as we progressed and as we got bigger and as pesticides made life easier for us, uh, you know, our, our weed control method when I was a kid was my brother and I and our friends on a hoe walking, walking fields. And I know the Nets made those comments too, that that was the weed control program. And so, you know, when you can bring in chemicals and now that the kids can do other work and, you know, it made us made life easier. It's why one of the reasons that chemicals kind of came to be, uh, into the nineties, uh, my brother and I, he had come home from college and he and I, and my dad tried farming together and it was, you know, too many chefs and not enough crew, <laughs> Uh, you know, and it didn't really work very well. So he and I split the farm up in the late eighties and he took over the pastures and the grass side of the operation. And I took over the row crop and dad kind of semi-retired. And by the year 2000, I'd grown the farm from a few hundred acres with six different crops and all the different livestocks to, we were 3,200 acres of Roundup ready corn and soybeans. Uh, the pigs were gone. The chickens were gone. Wow. The cattle were mostly gone you know, all the other crops have been eliminated so that we could become specialists to feed the world. And that was kind of when we bottomed out with the farm. Uh, Lynette wasn't in the picture yet. Um, her and I are both uh, had been married previously and I met her or we, she came into the picture in 2004, 2005 timeframe. But it was about that time I had switched to no-till in 1994 and I thought that was the end of the journey. You just quit tilling. But what happened when we quit tilling, we were using more chemicals because we had, you know, our weed control had to come from somewhere. And if we weren't cultivating, then we had to use more pesticides. And 
it was in that time frame in the early 2000s that I really realized that the farm was on the wrong track. Uh, environmentally, we were a disaster. Our erosion did not get better with no-till. Uh, all the things that I, I was told would happen didn't happen. And it's also the same time that I, I was playing with cover crops, but I really didn't have a good understanding. I didn't have the context of the farm. I didn't know anything about living soil. All I knew was soil was something we planted a seed in and sprayed it with all the amendments we needed and tried to keep it alive till we could harvest the grain off of it. And I didn't realize it was supposed to be a living, breathing entity uh, until 2002, 2003. And that's really when my journey changed. And then the next big aha moment for me is I started learning about soil and started understanding the carbon cycle and the water cycle and the mineral cycle and microbes and all this thing. And, and um, Lynette came along and she, she come out of a farming background also, but she, after she met me, she kind of had a change of mindset too. And we had both started buying all of our food in grocery stores for our families. We weren't growing any of our own food anymore, really. And Lynette started studying human health and I was studying soil health. And all of a sudden our conversations were paralleling. You know, uh, we were having almost the identical conversation from her research and mine. And that's, that's where we really started making a lot of changes. And I'll, she wants to add something to that. I'll let her. Yeah. I mean, one of the main things that I was really concerned about was the, the taste of food um, for us. I mean, when I grew up, we had a neighbor who sold us eggs. Um, you know, we raised, we had a milk cow. Uh, I knew what real milk tasted like. Um, you know, we had all of these things. We had our own pork. Um, so, you know, it, pork was not the other white meat when I was a kid. Um, it had flavor, it had texture, it had all of those things. And so, you know, and with, you know, Gail living on a farm, all, everything, the infrastructure was still there from the pigs. It was still there from the chickens and, and all of those things. And so one of the first things I said to him is, you know, I think it's time to get some chickens, um, you know, and so, you know, cause chickens are just, you know, they, they're just amazing eggs from, you know, a, a chicken are just, you know, an unbelievable um, food source. And so I said, why not? Why don't, why don't we do that? Right. And he, had, he was growing a, a number of different types of grains at that time. And I'm like, I can just clean up whatever's, you know, whatever gets spilt, you know, out in the fields and out, you know, out in the uh, barnyard and I can feed my chickens, you know, I don't have to buy a bunch of feed, you know, because he's already growing grains. So. And that's kind of how my journey was. And then, you know, of course, like he said, you know, I was really investigating the health side of it. I knew something was wrong um, because, you know, I, have, I had, of course, a grandmother that lived to 98 and she had very few health issues, you know, and I just knew that something had changed um, and I had to figure out what that was, you know. I, I, I love I love what you're saying about both of you just having this feeling and this inner knowing, um, this sense that something was not right and that, that there was, um, you know, a breakthrough that was wanting to, you know, some information and knowledge and a change that was wanting to come through and you felt it in your, in your body, this knowing. And I think that's part of the disconnection, you know, that we as humans are, are, 
in this sense of right now, this, this disconnection, not only with our soil, right. And our food supply, but with ourselves. And like, when we have, we know, like we know, and, and it's what I'm hearing you say is that you, you started to listen to, to what you already knew deep inside. And I also love what you said about living soil as opposed to, you know, dead soil, I'm assuming is, is, you know, the opposite of it. I love this. So it started with chickens yes. and um, take me where it went from there. So of course the chickens, I was, you know, shopped online to, to order my chicks and they had a meat and egg combo. And so I'm like, you know, I remember chicken tasting a lot different too. So I went ahead and ordered the meat and egg combo so that I could have meat chickens too. And so, you know, with that, you know, we, we had that, yeah, the flavor was unbelievable. You know, the, the chickens that we harvested were nothing compared to what the grocery store tasted like. Um, and with that, you know, those chickens foraged, so they ate bugs and all of this stuff. And, you know, the egg yolks uh, that the, that the chickens produced, I mean, they, they were this beautiful orange color. They weren't this, you know, almost, you know, almost tiny light yellow colored egg yolks. And with that, you got flavor. I remember that flavor and my mm. body remembered that, flavor, mm. you know, and you're just yes. so much more satisfied when you eat food that's like that. You know, you don't want all the extra stuff when you, when you eat that. And so with that, I, you know, of course the next journey mm -hmm. was what goes best with eggs, but bacon, right? So what do you do? You, <laughs> you bring the pigs back, you know? And I said, well, Gail, you've got that barn where his dad and, and grandfather had raised pigs. And, and I'm like, let's get a few pigs, you know, we'll just, you do them for ourselves. So well, as a as a recovering vegetarian, I'm I'm very interested in this meat progression. It's it sounds delicious. <laughs> so 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 Gail, what was happening on the farm side as far as your crops when um, Lynette was you know introducing the chickens and the pigs? What what was happening on the grow side? Well, you know once once I ch you know changed my mindset and realized I had a lot to learn about farming uh things really changed and, and the farm really started to click um once we brought in cover crops with an understanding of what they were doing once we brought diversity back into the rotation and started planting things like wheat and barley and and sunflowers and other things besides just corn and soy uh the, the farm just really clicked uh our, our need for for chemicals dropped whether it was herbicides or insecticides or fungicides which you know, when we started using chemicals, it was a, a couple of herbicides now and then. Uh, by by the year 2000, we were spraying herbicides two to three times a year, fungicides at least once a year, insecticides at least once a year. And what I didn't realize then, but I did a few short years later is, uh, and I got a friend in Australia calls this the moron principle. The, the more you put on, the more you have to put on. And that's a lesson I had to learn yeah. the hard way. So by the time we brought the diversity back onto the farm from the grain side and the, and the plant side, you know, our, our need for insecticides and fungicides went away almost immediately. And we started dropping our herbicide rates. We started dropping our commercial fertility rates. And lo and behold, our yields didn't go backwards. Uh, 
another thing that was really an aha moment for me, and this was, we're probably, we're still in the early 2000s, probably 2004, five, six. Uh, I, somewhere in that time frame, I got started asking to speak. I guess it was 2008 was the first time I spoke. And so now I'm starting to go to conferences and talking about cover crops and soil and what my limited knowledge is. And when you do that, then you start running into other rogue farmers and a couple of rogue scientists. And that was a big part because now, you know, there's mm -hmm. scientists that have been kicked out of the system that are doing their research and they're needing farmers and we're needing them. And they're telling us what we're seeing, you know, from a science point of view. And one of the things I was seeing and I was struggling with is all of a sudden I was the last farmer on the block to finish wheat harvest or corn harvest. And that wasn't like me in the past. And the reason was, is I couldn't get my crops to dry down fast enough. So my neighbors were, were harvesting their soybeans or their wheat and mine wasn't ready to cut yet. And it could have been even planted the same day. And the scientist laughed and she goes, well, of course, this is the way it should be. He says, your crops aren't dying anymore. They're maturing. And, we, and I don't care if you want to take this to the, to the human side or to the grain side. You know, are humans dying today or are they maturing? Our crops quit dying of disease and, right. and stress and they started living to full maturity and our, our yields were as good or better, but it was taking us longer to get them harvested just because they were living longer. And so, you know, there was just things like that that started mm. clicking. And it's also at the same time for me personally, um, my cholesterol was sky high. My blood pressure went from um, scary borderline low to too high and they wanted me on blood pressure medicine. And after the second or third visit, I caved to the pressure from my doctor and they started me on blood pressure and high cholesterol medicine. And I took them about two weeks. And I said, you know, we're, we're changing our diets. Lynette was already into that. And we're changing our lifestyle. And my parents, and my grandparents weren't taking these things. And I'm like, you know, maybe it's me. Um, I'm drinking a case of Pepsi a day. I'm, I'm eating fast food before, before this, you know, in the years leading up to Lynette and I's change. You know, my diet was horrible, but now my diet is, you know, I'm eliminating pop out of my diet and I'm taking out pesticides and we're starting to eat organic. And I says, you know, maybe I don't need these pills. And I quit taking them. And lo and behold, within six months, you know, with the diet changes and I got more adamant about diet and Lynette and I, you know, we really started digging in to our, our diets and our lifestyle. And lo and behold, I my blood pressure and cholesterol came back into check. And another thing that the doctor forgot to tell me it was maybe my cholesterol was too high, but my good cholesterol is also really high. So I, you know, the need for cholesterol pills might not have been there to begin with. And then in 2012 was yeah. a huge moment uh, for me. And I think for, for both of us, we're now at the point, you know, Roundup was, you know, the number one herbicide we were using glyphosate, uh, and somewhere along the lines, all of a sudden it quit working and we couldn't figure it out. And we were talking to high ups at Monsanto and agronomist. And we finally find out that our weeds are now resistant because we'd use so much of it. And of course, it's about the same time we're starting to hear, you know, all of these tree hugging liberal hippies on the coast are talking about it's bad for you. And of course, we asked our team and they told us oh, they're, they're just 
idiots that don't know anything about food and you don't listen to them. And so, you know, we stayed the course for a while and then, but I just knew like we talked earlier, deep inside, I knew where there's smoke, there's fire. And these are chemicals. Mm -hmm. And so I started researching and, and especially once I found out, you know, that the chemicals weren't working anymore. Well, what's wrong with them? And, you know, so, so I started doing research and I come across a guy named Dr. Don Huber, and he was a, a plant pathologist out of Purdue. He just retired and he was doing a lot of research on, on glyphosate and its effect on plants and animals and humans. And it wasn't pretty. And I listened to one of his podcasts. I listened to it several times. It was like an hour and 45 minutes. And there's just so much stuff. You're drinking out of a fire hose. But I knew there was something in there I was missing. And about the fifth time I listened to the podcast, I finally heard him say that glyphosate is an antibiotic. And it was 1130 at night. I didn't sleep that night. I didn't sleep the next night. I literally cried most of the night is it just all of a sudden it hit, uh, you know, because I fortunately I'd had the 10 years of learning about soil and, you know, we're trying to grow microbes in the soil. And if we're growing microbes in the soil and we're not using fungicides, we're not using insecticides, but we're spraying with an antibiotic two or three times a year. And, it you know, obviously it's an instant hit with Lynette and I because we're, she's studying gut microbiome. I'm studying soil microbiome and it just clicked. Exactly. And we, we did a very fast, hard 180 that scared the crap out of everybody and probably including us. But that, that was really, you know, the nail in the coffin for the industrial ag side of me, so to speak. It was, it was the last straw and that's really changed us forever. It, it's, it's, I'm feeling it right now as you're, as you're telling me the story, like it's hitting me. I can feel a tiny glimpse of what it must have. I mean, I can't even imagine being in it like you were, but like, I'm feeling it. It's very, very powerful. And it's, it's that moment where you, you learn the thing that changes everything and, and that you can never not know this information anymore. It's like the curtain is pulled back. You know, you, you're seeing behind the curtain. You, it's so clear to you in this moment, you know, oh my gosh, how powerful. And the connection between our microbiome in our bodies and the, and the, and the, and the microbiome in the soil and then the whole biome, right? Our air, our water, our soil, and then in our bodies, it's, it's all, you know, what are they, I, it's a saying, right? As, as, what is it? As above, as below, or, you know, it's all the same. I'm, we, you know, we come from the soil. We will return to the soil. So powerful. And what we do to the soil, we do to ourselves. That's right. And, and then as humans, we're doing it to the soil and we're doing it to our bodies at the same time, separate from just even eating yeah. the food that's, that's, that we're doing it to because we're taking antibiotics. We're, we're, we're humans. We're, we're overusing antibiotics you know, as medicine yeah. too, not just what we're doing to our soils, and then but almost all, all so the powerful that food moment. that we're eating is, has antibiotics in it because of the glyphosate. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we're, we're taking way too many antibiotics and we're eating them. So you realize glyphosate, glyphosate bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You've got to change everything. You did a, you did a 180. Tell me what happened then. Well, unfortunately, how, how did your farm, farm and for me personally, uh, 
and I knew better, but I wasn't, the farm wasn't in a position to completely eliminate chemicals yet. I just knew I needed to get out of, away from glyphosate. And so we quit using glyphosate and we replaced it with Paraquat. Which if you want to do any research. And that's a, what is that? How is that um, different? Paraquat, um, it, it's well documented. It does major damage to the nerve system. Um, it, it's, it's ever bit as horrible as glyphosate, if not worse. And I was a very heavy user of that for several years. Uh, I didn't know at the time there was all chemicals that are used. There are what's called re-entry times after they're sprayed on a field or in your yard or wherever. Um, there's a 24 to 48 hour re-entry time. And I was sitting in the field in the tractor while they were spraying them, breathing it. So... Um, you know, it, it still... and, and, and to be clear, and to be clear, Gail, when you, oh, well, I'm, 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 I'm still dealing with the side effects of that today. I'm afraid. Wow. Well, and, and as you say, what you, what you were using to spray your crops and, and all of this and what you were inhaling and what you are now dealing with, this is like every farmer, right? I mean, this is every traditional farmer, who's using chemicals, like your story is, is common. It's, it's, I mean, not the change to regenerative farming practices is not common yet, but your traditional farming story of using chemicals and being exposed and all of this is totally common. This is, this is how farming is done. Yeah. And there's, there's research out there now showing yeah. direct links between pesticide use with, among farmers and depression. And when you look at, at farmers are now killing themselves in, in, in the U.S. at almost two times the rate of the average American. So, yeah, there, there's a direct link and there's more to it. Financial situations and family and all lots of things have snowballed on farmers. But we, we have to understand that the chemicals are part of the problem also. 100 percent. I mean, if you are completely obliterating the 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 human body micro microbiome by being exposed to these pesticides you're i mean we know that i believe 80% of serotonin is made in the gut is made in our stomachs our feel good uh serotonin is made in our belly and if we are completely um destroying the microbiome absolutely it's going to affect um mental health. And you're right. There's so many other factors that, that farmers as you, as you know, are dealing with the, 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 the business of being a farmer and then not, to, not even to lose sight of what you guys are talking about, which is you're in this system of farming with the chemicals. And it's, it's just, it's a system that you, you know, that you, you do and that you have this inner knowing you have this inner you know, light, this inner knowing that's, that may be really deep and not conscious at first and, and maybe not real, you know, accessible to everyone, but it's there, but you've got to stay in the system, or at least there's this feeling that you have to stay and ignore maybe what, you know, what is really going on or what you know might need to be changed. And so, you know, I mean, I just can't even imagine um, how how much mental health is a concern in the farming community. Do you want to expand on that um, a little bit about what you have found and what 
I mean, what what's happening with your peers and your your colleagues in farming with depression and and how are they working through that? You want to go first? I'll let you. On. <laughs> uh, well, this this all happened for us in 2012, so 10 years ago. Uh, today, looking back over the last 10 years, you know, at the time I didn't realize my mental health was slipping and, and, you know, before we get any deeper, I've not been tested for depression. I've, I've not seen a specialist. So I guess you could argue whether I have it or not. Um, those that are around me, it's pretty obvious that I've been dealing with it now for 10 years uh, and the farming community in general is highly depressed today, extremely stressed, very poor physical health. Uh, I would guess probably alcoholism is, I wouldn't say it's running rampant, but it's very high, uh, which would make sense if you're going to be depressed. That's alcoholism, depression kind of go hand mm -hmm. in hand. And, mm -hmm. and like I said a few minutes ago, you know, American farmers are killing themselves at almost twice the rate the average citizen in the U.S. is. And we're seeing these, these rates are similar in Europe and China and India and other countries as well. And in, in the U.S. anyway, there's, there's very little support. I mean, obviously there is a suicide hotline you can call, but the, the odds of somebody knowing anything about farming, if you make that call, uh, are slim to none. If you go to a doctor or somebody, they want they want to start you on a prescription and which masks the problem and doesn't yep. fix it. And there's just there's there's very little out there right now uh, for agriculture to help turn this around. And it's if we haven't gone over the cliff yet, we're mm -hmm. we're at the top of the cliff and we've got most of our weight over the cliff and hanging on with by our fingertips. So. The change in the way you look at farming and the way you look at the the nutrients and the and the the aliveness of the soil and and the way you have been able to um, at least for your farm see a path forward with you know has has that because you were able to take some level of control over over that has that improved your sense of well-being in some respects being able to forge a path in a different direction you go first on this one and i'll get i'll follow up um yes i mean Needless to say, when you when you look at the system as a whole system and that we're part of this system, we're not in charge of the system. We don't manage. We we help to manage the system in some respects, but really we're just we're just a participant in the in in the bigger picture. And so when you st step back and you take a look at every decision that we make on the farm, you know, affects all of us, but not just all of us. It affects our climate. It 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 affects you know, our health, it, it, it affects our environment, it affects all of these things. And when you start to, to look at things like that, it changes your entire mindset um, as to, you know, the decisions that you're making on the farm. And sometimes that decision is not to do anything. 
Um, and, and we learned that as we watched our systems come back alive, as we watched the soil come back alive and mm. the plants come back alive and the insects come back, is to sit back and wait and see what happens because nature's perfect. Mother Nature knew what she was doing. Yes. For everything that happens, yes. there is always something that will come, you know, and there'll be a predator insect. There'll be, you know, maybe that's just how nature was supposed to work out, um, you know, and we're not there to conquer, you know, we're there just to live within that system, you know, and to do the best job we can, you know, with the livestock that we have. Yeah, I, I totally agree with what she said. So beautifully said. It, it, was, it was very difficult for me uh, to get to this point. Um, being a farmer and a man and being bred and raised and educated that the way you grow a crop is to kill stuff. And and part of that is the male. I, I mean, we're the hunters and the gatherers, right? We've provided for years by killing and conquering. And so this, this was, you know, I had a lot of unlearning to do before I could go forward. And, I, and I'm still there today. I'm not, I'm a long ways from being where I need to be. Uh, early on, I, I, yeah, Lynette made the comment about the decisions we make. And we, we changed our mindset in the, you know, 2012, 13, 14 timeframe, soil first. Every decision we made was, how does this affect the soil today? How does it affect it next year? You know, two years, 10 years from now and the water and the air and everything. And then we, we'd reevaluate the question and the decision based on that. Uh, and, mm -hmm. you know, the farm became about growing food instead of growing commodities. Mm -hmm. uh, our diets became much better. And that wasn't necessarily right. Um, you know, at the time we thought it was, we, we now realize that just changing our diets isn't enough. You know, we, we've got to change the mindset that we are all one, that, you know, it's about wildlife. It's about energy. It's about all of this, you know, it's not just focusing on the cow and not spraying chemicals and eating healthy, um, just eating healthy you know, unfortunately, I thought that was going to fix everything, just changing my diet. And it took me eight years until I figured out that I got to work on my mindset and my attitude and truly being at one and, and listening to my farm, listening to nature and then making a decision. And like Lynette said, sometimes the best decision is, is to do nothing. That's not an easy decision for an old white guy to make, mm. especially a farmer, to stand back and do nothing. Yeah. Yes. And how wise, right? And how restrained to, 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 to be in that moment and know and that knowledge, like the best thing sometimes is to do nothing. You're absolutely right. How hard is that? But how wise is that? Like amazing. And, and the unlearning that you're speaking of. You know, I mean, it's, I can see this evolution of the two, you know, of the two of you as people and as farmers, you know, and as energy fields, like it's, it's beautiful. Um, I'm, I'm interested in something you just said about how you were making decisions based on the soil that you were really trying to, to base your decisions on the soil. But I know for you guys, you know, your livelihood depends on, you know, your output or, or I don't really know actually what, 
how, you know, it works financially for farmers, but I've got to imagine that was very risky for you to, to, to make those decisions because weren't you worried that that was going to affect your income and how does all that work? Yeah, you're, you're spot on. Uh, the, the risk to change to do what we're doing is through the roof financially. Uh, there's, you know, my, in my old world, my old way of farming, one of the things that kind of helped get me mentally out of that state was when I come to the realization that my year financially relied on two things as a farmer in Kansas, rain in August, because uh, that was the t- time of the year when the the grain, corn and soybeans and the, the summer crops are setting yield. It's also our hottest and driest month. So you don't get rain in August and you don't have yield. It's pretty simple. And in Kansas, in our area, August is pretty hot and pretty dry. So we were at the mercy of Mother Nature. And the other thing that dictated our year financially was government programs. And so my whole well-being financially you know, in the, in the 90s and early 2000s was um, relying on August rainfall and government payments. And I don't have control over either of those to a point. And that that made mm-hmm. it easier to try to get out because, you know, what we're doing now, I have more control and more say, but I also don't have the crop insurance. I don't have the government payments that keep farmers afloat. We're not eligible. And if we were, I wouldn't be interested. Uh, I, I don't want to jump through government hoops anymore. Okay. I, I, I would like to t- have you tell me a little bit more about this. What do you mean you don't take government st- and you're not eligible? What does that mean? And Well, uh, crop insurance was initially built around row crops, grain crops, corn, soy, wheat. Uh, and that was part of the, how they destroyed biodiversity and, and just diversity in general is they, they focus on six crops, you know, wheat, cotton, corn, soy, a couple others. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's part, part of the farm bill and it's all taxpayer subsidized. So you're paying for this. I'm not, well, I am too. I pay taxes too, but, uh, and then, you know, they, they yeah. provide us money if our crops aren't as good. And then later on, they also insured revenue. So if the prices drop, there is insurance for that. And then there's just the farm programs in general that, uh, you sign up for every couple of years and the government sends you money depending on formulas and calculations that I can't explain. Mm-hmm. And today, the bulk of farm income in Kansas is government payments, whether it's crop insurance or just program money. It's it's the high majority of income comes from taxpayer subsidies. And last year in Kansas, it was 80%. 80% of the farm income came from those government subsidy programs um, through the farm bill. That's very and these and these programs and to be are eligible. set up. Well, it, this is all done through Congress, but Congress is bought and paid for on both sides of the aisle by large ag, uh, whether it's Bayer or you know John Deere or whoever it is, and so they help write the farm bill, help, and it is basically designed for farmers to fail. And so that they can control the food. Um, they don't care about erosion. They, they right. say they do, but you can have five, 10 ton of soil erode per acre per year. And you're still eligible for payments. 
you know, they things they don't like are things like cover crops and things that we're and other farmers are doing, uh, growing multiple crops together to try to increase diversity and, and lower our needs on, you know, outside inputs. And those are things that are frowned upon by the farm bill. So you are not eligible because you do cover crops and you have crop diversification? Um, th- there's There's been or changes. People the- that are planting cover crops are, are eligible, but the, the rules are, are stricter. Uh, so they, they don't, they don't ban you, but they don't, help make it easier. For us, we don't grow row crops anymore. We're just growing meat. We're just grazing for the most part. Uh, there are some programs out there okay. that we're, we haven't looked. There, we might be eligible for some of them, but the last time I knew it, we weren't. And I don't, again, if you want to sign up for government programs, then you have to start jumping through hoops and the hoops usually aren't, aren't yeah. what we want to jump through. Yeah. So, so take me to when you decided to stop growing the grain crops and switch to meat farming. Well, uh, you know, early in my journey as I started realizing the importance of diversity and really became a student of the water cycle. And we talk about fixing soil. It really comes down to the water cycle, the big water cycle, the little water cycle. And that's if you want to change climate, fix the water cycle. It's as simple as that. It. CO2 is important, but it's about water, getting it in the soil. And it, this is done really easily. Uh, but I, as, as I started studying this, you know, in Kansas, we live on top of some of the, the deepest, richest soils that have ever been created. And that was done as a tall grass prairie managed for, you know, hundreds of years by large herds of mostly, you know, ruminant animals, bison, deer, antelope, uh, mm-hmm. huge numbers of predators that kept the herds on the move, as well as, you know, running out of grass, you know, they would move. And that's how these soils were formed. And, you know, the tall grass prairie is heavy dominant perennial grasses. And we're, we're now spent the last hundred years plus growing wheat, which is a very short rooted crop, Corn, which is a very water-dependent crop, soybeans, uh, which is a very low-carbon crop. So we we've replaced an extremely diverse, extremely deep-rooted prairie with three crops in Kansas, and none of them have a root system anywhere near the, the perennial grasses. So for me, it was it was pretty easy to realize from an agronomy standpoint early on that if you know we started growing soil very rapidly on our farm, which soil scientists told us point blank, we were lying until we finally had some scientists come along and, and validate that we were growing, we could grow an inch of topsoil in 10 years, which we were told it would take 10,000. And we're, but we're growing it from the top down instead of the bottom up. But, and we can do that with annual crops, but wow. if you really want to get back to where we were in a properly functioning system, you have to have the perennials back in place. And so we knew that we had to return to perennial systems. And so for Lynette and I, it was just easy to quit growing grain. We'd gone broke because we'd had a run-in with the government in 2012. We won that battle, but they broke us in the process. So it kind of helped give us the shove to get out of that large-scale industrial ag and doing what we want to do and get away from the government. And not that we're away from the government, but we do have a little more control over what we're doing here. So tell me about your animals. What do you got going on? Go. Go. 
Well, let's see. We have everything from Gloucestershire Old Spot Pigs um, to Muscovy Ducks to uh, a group of layers. And of course, we do uh, meat chickens in the in the spring and in the fall. And then we have some cows. And of course, um, we have a flock of Catawban sheep. Um, and so, yeah, is that all? And we've got a couple of geese. Yeah, we've got a couple of geese. A couple of guineas, a couple of geese. Yeah, and we've got three guineas that are in charge. Yeah, <laughs> the, yep. The, the livestock, we, we like to try to find the older breeds when we can. She mentioned the pigs are Gloucestershire Old Spot. It's a heritage breed. Our cows are British White, which is an offset of the ancient White Park cattle out of Great Britain. Uh, these older breeds haven't been messed with for high production like the Angus and the, the, you know, the pigs and the cattle that are being used today that are being bred for gain and white are meat. grain eaters. And in the case of pigs, you know, the, all they want is white meat so they can compete with chicken, which white meat has no, is no fat, no flavor, no nothing. So, you know, we, we like the stuff that's, that's old, that has flavor, has fat and knows how to, knows how to go out and forage and can, you know, if Lynette and I get killed in a car wreck tonight and nobody knows about it for a month, these cows and pigs can find a way to survive. They don't they don't need man to haul feed to them. It, it sounds lovely. So you 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 said you have a, a, a how many sheep do you have? A herd of a sheep? A flock of sheep. Yep. And I I think I've got right now. A, a flock, flock of sheep. sheep. Yep. I think there's 63 ewes is what there is. Yeah. Yeah, and most of the time in the spring, sixty-three, three, and a lot of times in the spring they'll have, they'll have a, uh, uh, twins or triplets. So then the flock increases quickly. So yeah, yeah, and we do rotational grazing, and wow. so we're constantly moving all around the farm um, with the sheep, and so that you know that that solves a lot of some of the problems that people have with sheep, which is parasite problems and things like that. If you keep them moving. And well, they get a diverse diet too, yeah. because we're always moving in different spots. Yeah. Absolutely. And we're, we're, what we're trying to do with the rotational grazing and the multiple species is emulate what nature did with the large herds. You know, it, buffalo get all the credit, but it wasn't just buffalo. Like I said, it was deer and antelope, and they were being followed by bear and and wolf and insects. and the insects and the birds would have just been unbelievable. And it takes all of those things. Cows graze differently than sheep. The, the and in the way that they take the grass and bite it even. They, they pull and yank on the plant and tear where sheep just clip. Um, their manure has different carbon to nitrogen ratios. So yeah. they, they might both be ruminant animals, but they both behave and manage completely differently. So it's important to have multiple species of animals, just like it is multiple species of plants. They all do different things. Plus, they all bring us different flavors and different nutritions and everything that sheep eats. And when we do the rotational grazing, you know, the cows and the sheep, instead of being pinned up in a pen and eating two or three or four grains and some hay, you know, they're out here eating 100 to 200 different plants. And all of those photo and phytonutrients are in the meat. So yeah. when we eat, we're eating everything that that animal ate. And, and just the energy, right? The energetic field that those animals are grazing in and the movement and the sunshine and the biodiversity. I mean, everything is energy. And that, again, is going to then translate into the soil and into our bodies and into all of it. Um, 
It sounds wonderful. I want to transition um, to um, your Fuller Field School, which is originally how I learned about you um, through a newsletter that was talking about the Fuller Field School. Can you uh, summarize for me um, what this is and why you started it and what it's all about? Um, sure. It, it started initially, I, I mentioned, you know, back in 2008 or so, I got started asking to speak at different conferences and I enjoy teaching. So that, that was fun, uh, getting to help farmers, uh, meeting new farmers and new people and, and touring the country also gets you to tour farms, other farms. So it was, you know, I was out teaching, but I was also learning at the same time and I really enjoyed it. And probably the first scientist that I met that was, was a rogue scientist was a lady named Dr. Jill Clapperton. Uh, she is a rhizopharycologist. So she studies literally the microbe system around the root of the plant. That's the rhizosphere. And she started working with us uh, from the get-go. As soon as we met her, she was helping us. Uh, you know, we were obviously helping her because we could give her a place to do research. And we were, her and I were standing out in the field one day and she goes, you ever thought about having a workshop? And I said, oh man, yes, absolutely. And so she goes, let's, let's put together a cover crop workshop. And so that night over dinner with Lynette, we, you know, we kind of hatched Fuller Field School. Uh, Jill helped us launch it. She's, she was there for two years and she's left and turned it over to us. But she really was adamant about a couple of things in the beginning. First of all, we were going to call it a school, not a conference, because she wanted it to be really in-depth uh, and, and people to understand this is a place to come to learn, not to come get a free cup of coffee. The other thing she was pretty adamant about was she wanted us to source as much of the food as we could locally instead of just going to the local barbecue joint and you know throwing out some donuts and barbecue like most of the farm meetings in Kansas and then at that first school, again, it, it was it was a cover crop conference. It was on how to plant cover crops, how to pick what plants to use. It was very agronomically based. And we had we had a speaker on grazing. We had one on how to use setup equipment to plant a cover crop. And then we had an entomologist talking about the importance of insects with cover crops. And then Jill. And one of Jill's presentations uh, was about food. I was 49 years old, and it was the first time I'd ever heard a presentation at a farming conference about food. And to me, that was pretty sickening. That doesn't make any no sense. sense. But yeah, that doesn't make and any it sense. Was, so it was just another aha moment for Lynette and I. And also, this just happened to be 2012, which was the pivotal year for us in every way, shape, and form. And with that one presentation and a couple of the other things, the field school took a really hard turn, not really away from cover crops, but we we took a really deep dive into the carbon, water, mineral cycles, energy flow, and the connections with soil and humans, microbiomes. And, you know, from that, that just kind of launched us. And from there, we just kind of went a different, a completely different direction than all other farming conferences, whether they be organic or industrial. And, and with this with this conference, you're watching our journey um, because the cool thing about as you see what speakers we had each year, um, you see our journey of learning, of transforming, you know, to what we are today. Um, and along that way, 
we made new friends, we lost some friends, you know, all of that happens as you make those journeys. Um, and, and that's just how life is, you know, that's how you're going to, to be able to change is that there's going to be out with the old and, and in with the new. And, and with that, uh, there was a number of people that followed that journey with us. And this last year was our 11th year um, at uh, doing the field school. So we were talking about the Fuller Field School and how that evolved. And I'm curious, who attends these um, schools? Uh, what different types of people? And you know, where do they come from? Are they from, are they um, national? Are they local? Uh, we have, we have a really diverse crowd. It's been really amazing. And I, I, you know, I would love to take full credit, but it, it's just kind of happened on its own a little bit. Um, and, and really we probably need to split it up a little bit pre and post COVID or pre COVID and COVID. Uh, in the first eight years, we averaged more wow. overseas attendees than in-county attendees. Um, obviously with COVID that changed that, you know, people didn't travel as far, you know, in 2020, 21 and 22 because of COVID. So uh, we did lose, you know, the overseas attendees, uh, but we have, you know, the last three years starting in 2019, yeah, 19, 20, and 21, I think we were 50-50 female and male. This year, we were actually 12 more females than male. So we've actually gone, and that's in Kansas, that is completely unheard of at, a, at any kind of a farm meeting. Uh, we have urban farmers. We have government entities. We have NGOs. Uh, so not everybody that shows up is a farmer. We, we had a doctor here this year. You know, we get consumers sometimes. It's a really chefs. Yeah, we've had a couple of chefs. So it's a really, really diverse group, which makes for um, <laughs> makes you a little nervous. That, you know, you're going to put Democrats and Republicans and male and female in a room and and not have a fist fight. But we we do this for two days and we have some really good deep discussions. Uh, we have somehow people feel safe enough to open up and. And not just shared stories, but shared tears, which is another thing that doesn't happen at farmer conferences in Kansas, uh, especially to see older guys crying. And and but it's just it's fantastic dialogue. We changed the format this year. Um, Pre-COVID, we were pretty typical PowerPoint presentations, questions and answers, uh, cramming information down their throats like a typical conference. And we realized in the last three or four years that. It, that you know, we weren't including the attendees as well as we could have. And they, they had a say, and by day two, they were restless and they weren't listening as well. And Q&A was eating up a lot of time and we were having to cut it off. So we changed the format and did, did away with about half of the presentations. We no longer use PowerPoints. The presentations are just the speaker talking and reading the crowd. And it's more of a conversation almost than a presentation. And then we just have a lot more time for Q and A and open discussions. Some, yeah. And, and we do it all outside if we can. And the, the discussions a lot of times will have a, a theme. So it's not just rambling, talking, it's, it's usually geared around a topic. So, 
Um, but go ahead, what you just want to add. But um, the big thing that COVID, that happened with COVID is that we decided, why are we renting a conference area? We have a farm. And if you want to talk about farming, it needs to be on a farm. You need to be able to feel it. You need to be able to smell it. You need to be able to hear it. You need to have the chickens walking through your group, uh, the cat bringing in her rat to eat. Uh, you just need all of those things um, for a farm conference is it needs to be on farm. Um, and then with COVID, yeah, we learned a lot. So, you know, we didn't have to provide chairs. We had everybody bring their own chair, uh, their own water bottles. Um, you know, we're helping the environment or we're changing things up. And, and with that, that gave us that opportunity to completely revamp it. Yeah. And, and the, and the response from the attendees was unbelievable. We, we have all but banned bottled water on the farm and yeah. just, and, and the first year we were proud because we the city was donating bottled water to us mm -hmm. that we were handing out to our attendees. And, and, you know, 10 years later, we don't even allow it. So that kind of just shows where our journey is, is coming on. And then the, the other big thing about the field school, and we have to talk about this because it started with that discussion about food and Jill having a source some local food. And now it's just a food event. We bring in chefs from Wichita and Kansas City and Emporia, a uh, different chef for each meal. Uh, we source as much as we can locally. If we can't source it on our farm, we bring in other farmers to bring food. And I think this year we had well, almost 30 different farms mm -hmm. involved in, in the food for the for two days, for the breaks or for the meals. The chefs come out and talk to us. They don't just hide in the kitchen. They talk about how and why they're connected to the farm and why they cook the food the way they did. And they, they come back after the meal and answer questions about how it's prepared or why it's prepared this way. And they're, they're a part of the field school also. And it's, you know, I think when, especially when we talk about human health, you know, we can talk all day about the convenience of fast food and all of these bad things that we've done and, and how fast we eat. But, you know, food used to be an event and it has to become an event again. And we have to sit down. Our, our lunches are now 90 minutes. You know, when the average American eats lunch in 20 minutes. Um, you know, we, we sit and we eat and we laugh and we talk and we sing and, and somebody will bring a guitar and the next thing you know, the mic's turned back on and somebody's playing music during lunch. That's just what it's all about. I 100% agree. I mean, I'm just falling in love with this idea of really what it is. It's falling back in love with food and, 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 and communal eating and, and community, right? It's connecting us not only to the food, but you talk a lot about connecting to community. And, um, you know, we, we, it took a long time to get ourselves into this mess, you know, of, like you said, fast food and mass food production and monocropping and chemicals and all of this it took us a long time to get ourselves into it. It's going to take some time to get us out. Um, but, I love this focus on food because as farmers, having the disconnection between the end product and people using food, you know, as nourishment, as the foundation of our health, as the foundation of our expression as humans on this planet, you know, living to, like you said, your, I don't know what you said, your grandmother until 98 years old. I mean, you know, 
this is what we want. We want long lives, healthy, long lives where we're moving and loving and enjoying and talking and eating. <laughs> I mean, that's it. It's the full circle. Yeah. Yeah. And that was her life. And that was her life. Her last week of her life was actually a, a Royals baseball game in Kansas City, uh, two birthday parties, and she played cards with her card ladies. You know, that's life. That's living. That's it. Yeah. A, a perfect day to die, right? It is. Yeah. You got to make every day, day a good day to die. Yep. So I found out about you guys like yep. a few days or a week after you did your last Fuller Field School. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I missed it. So are you guys still only going to do this once a year? Or are you thinking about doing this a couple times a year now? What, what's going on? That's a good question. You know, we completed year number 11 <laughs> and where it will go next year, you know, we just don't know, um, you know, it, as to what we will do. I mean, we've had discussions whether we should have two, uh, one in the spring and one in the fall. Um, but, you know, it seems like spring comes around and, and the farm is really busy in the spring. And so that's, that kind of takes our time. Yeah. And so that's why fall seems like it works the best for us, but we don't know. We, yeah, we've, this discussion comes up every three or four years is, you know, and we're constantly evaluating and reevaluating and Lynette and I are horrible at overthinking crap. So, but you know, the, the, the biggest <laughs> pushback we get, well, there's, there has been a couple Usually the biggest pushback we get with any field school is there's not enough time for discussion. Uh, the breaks aren't long enough. And that, that's a pretty wild pushback to get on a, on an event. But also there's a lot of requests for for how. Because the, the field school is built around why. And it's kind of the 30,000 foot view of, of why we're doing these things. And so there's right. there's a lot of people wanting to know how they do it. How, how do you plant the seed? How do you, how do you, build a permaculture farm? How do you rotate, rotationally graze your cows? Or how do you bring ducks onto a farm? Or all these questions about how. And so that's that's kind of the discussion we're having right now as we're reevaluating is if we do two, you know, do we do one as more of a hands-on how workshop? And then the other one is the traditional, you know, 30,000 foot view of why. Got it. Sounds good. Now, there's a couple of other things I wanted to touch on before we go. I know that you um, you produce and sell your meat and lo to your region, local region. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Like the different um, meats that you grow and raise on your land. Um, is it called a CSA? Is that is that the word or is that the acronym that you use? Can you explain yeah, this? Not all of our sales are CSA, but we do offer CSAs. And it, that's a term that come out of the, the vegetable world. Um, is CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture. And the, the vegetable farmer okay. started it. So it, it's a subscription. So if you start, you know, at the beginning of the growing season, say in April, and, and you buy into a six-month subscription from this farmer to buy produce, but you pay one month or one week payment up front. And this gives the farmer the seed money, literally, to, to start the, the gardens and the beds, you know, the vegetable production. It also gave them an idea of demand. So they kind of knew how many radishes or whatever to right. grow. And so we've just, we've expanded it into the meat side. Uh, I, I'm not going to say it's been an overwhelming success. We, we continue to tweak it and, uh, 
but it, it it's still it I like it because again it gives us an idea of demand you know six months down the road and that for us is always important and especially today I mean COVID was extremely difficult for all farmers uh, it, and it's probably something that's never really been talked about but just imagine going back to the winter of 2019-20 and all of a sudden you're you're in a pandemic you're in a lockdown food obviously is always a priority uh, people are suddenly you know as we have supply chain interruptions and grocery stores are struggling to keep up and people are starting to ask questions again about food the demand for all of us just went through the roof well, do you up do you up production? Do you turn away customers? Do you you know how do you handle all this? It was absolutely a logistics nightmare because at the same time we're already having to deal with shutdowns and masks, no mask, you know, outside social distancing, all these rules that were changing almost daily in, in the early days of the pandemic. So it was a real nightmare for us. And then you know demand goes up and. You know, for vegetable farmers, that's one thing. But for for a meat producer, you know, it, I'm 30 months mm-hmm. from from uh, conceiving a baby calf to putting a ribeye on your plate. It's a little hard to ramp up production. Obviously, with chickens, right. that happens a little fast or a lot faster with chickens and pork and with lamb. But still, is and and if we up production and then the world goes back to normal, what happens to our demand? And are we going to be sitting on a whole bunch of supply right. that nobody wants. And so it, it was a real nightmare for us. And so that, you know, using things like the CSA can help alleviate some of that stress and give us some ideas of, of demand down the road. That was probably a long winded answer to the question. I didn't need to go that it far. Kind of, that's okay. I think it's, I think it's important. And I think it sounds a little bit kind of like a co-op or like an aspect of a co-op where the community can participate, you know, in the farm, you know, um, and being part of this farming community by saying, okay, I'm going to be one of your farm partners and one of your customers, and I'm going to pay you according to a schedule. And, um, you know, I love this idea and how amazing would it be that if we could all, you know, as citizens become part of a local or regional farm or two or three, depending on, you know, the types of foods and, you know, I mean, supporting our local and regional farmers and getting local food, getting food that was grown near us, you know, and, and avoiding all of this long transport stuff all over the country. I mean, you're solving so many problems when you partner with your local growers, right? Yeah. And some of the comments from some of our customers, you know, during the pandemic was that they were able to tell people at work, you know, they said, well, there weren't any eggs left on the grocery store shelves. And they said, well, I know a farmer. And so I have eggs, you know, and there was no ground beef left at the grocery store. And, you know, the, the lady was just so, it was so nice. She said to be able to say, but there's farmers that produce ground beef in our area and I know them, you know, that, that you can get food yeah. from a farmer so amazing. and you don't have to worry about the supply chain issues with, you know, with a grocery store. So what we did during the pandemic is I, I told you not all of our sales are through the CSA. We have people that just 
you know, we, we do monthly deliveries to Kansas City, Wichita, and Emporia, and we sell off the farm. And so, you know, it's not uncommon for somebody to call and say, hey, we're coming to the farm today. We want to order this. Or we send out an email to all of our customers, CSA or not, to Kansas City. You know, I'm going to Kansas City next Wednesday. Here's, here's our list. And sometimes they turn in an order and sometimes they don't. But during the pandemic, our CSA customers yeah. had priority. So when they signed up, they were guaranteed a six-month supply of food every, you know, every month they delivery. So they knew exactly how many pounds they were getting. Um, they knew they were, they were going to have eggs. They knew they were going to have ground beef. And that, that certainly helped them a lot. Um, you know, since the pandemic, it's been a real struggle because it just seems like the world grew a really short memory about, some of the yeah. some of the issues that some of the good issues the pandemic brought is the vulnerability of the supply chain and the importance of local right. food. I mean, and it's interesting the pandemic. Well, I hate to say this phrase, but it, it kind of played into our hands a little bit um, because Lynette and I have we've just been really big and adamant on educating and acting and farming and living as part of a community. Um, I don't believe in the industrial supply chain, even if it's organic, healthy, regenerative food. I don't think we have any business selling food to you and, you know, or anybody in Pennsylvania or anybody like that. They, our customers need to be within a radius of our farm. That's when the food has the most value for their immune system. And it also is, makes us the most carbon friendly farm we can be. We don't want to ship, uh, Mm. So, you know, we've been adamant on things like that. And yeah, you know, if you were our neighbor, we would love to have you for a customer, but we would hope that we weren't your only supplier. We would hope you were buying from 10 farmers, that you were buying your clothing and your honey and your vegetables and everything that you could as, as locally as, you, as possible, not just, you know, relying on us for a couple of pounds of hamburger or something. Right. What a great lesson. I mean, I think that that's going to lead into my final question to you, which is what can the average person do who's not connected to a farm, who's somebody like me who lives, you know, in one of the largest cities in the United States, totally disconnected, you know, from farms. I live in the middle. And um, what can the average person do? Um, I, I think the first thing you're saying is maybe find out if where the local farms are, see what kind of programs they have, and, and, and maybe source some of your, some or all of your, your consumable items through local sources. Would that be the num number one thing you would say? And, and then what else can we do? Yep, that, that, that is a powerful one right there is, and that is our journey too, as we have changed how we eat and what we choose to buy is we are looking for regenerative farmers that, that want to make these changes and they need people's support. Because remember, these regenerative farmers aren't just selling you good quality, nutrient-dense food. They're helping our climate. They're changing things that are very important to all of us and to all of our futures. And so every dollar we spend, we think about, you know, how is this going to affect our climate? How is this going to affect our bodies um, and our environment? And if you always think of that, it makes purchasing things simple. And start with your farmer's market. You know, I think one of the things that one of the first books I, I read was um, Eat Wild 
Um, and she taught, she has a website that shows you all of these local farmers and what they produce. And it's right there on there. Mm. Um, another one is a local harvest. Uh, there's a number of websites that, that have links to your area that you can find regenerative farmers, but don't forget there's a farmer's market in your area. Go in there and you talk to those people. You ask them questions, you go visit mm-hmm. their farms you become part of their community, Mm -hmm. they become part of your community. Mm -hmm. And that's how you can solve a lot of the problems. Because then you get to see the farmer Mm -hmm. and you realize how hard they work and how hard that they, you know, are trying to transition their farms and how much they care. They care about you and your your family. I think a couple things to add to that. I agree totally with everything she said. Um, I think first of all, you know, obviously you got to educate yourself, but I think your you and your family need to sit down and, and write some goals because your, I mean, Johnny, your goal for food might be different than mine. Um, you know, maybe organic is more important than regenerative or, or whatever that is. Uh, and I think when you, if you're really starting out at, as an average American today with a very typical conventional diet, I'd be cautious about making wholesale changes overnight. Um, it took Lynette and I a few months. You know, we started taking pop out of our diet and we, re- and every time we took something bad out, we tried to replace it with something good. We didn't, we didn't open up the covers and throw everything in the trash. And I, I think that would be extremely difficult for anybody's body to handle uh, a change that fast. So I think setting down some goals of what's, what's most important to you, and then trying to go find those farmers. She's right, going to a farmer's market. One thing I'd like to caution there, farmers are busy at a market, so try not to take up a bunch of their time asking questions if there's other people trying to buy their product. But at the same time, you have the right to know. So get contact information from them. See if you can come see their farm. If they don't want you to come to their farm, you're probably at the wrong place anyway. And just because they're at the farmer's market doesn't mean yeah. they have. Doesn't mean it's organic. Doesn't mean that it's what you're looking for. Yeah. The, sadly, there's, you know, right. there's plenty of industrial farmers at the farmer's market too. That's why you've got, I think when you go to the market initially, you should have right. a couple, three questions in mind. And then if the farmer piques your interest, see if you can set a date later to get with them to have a deeper chat and hopefully tour the farm and uh, touring the farm is important if, if it's possible. I understand in the middle of the big cities that might be difficult to do sometimes, but um, I, I but, think but farmers mm-hmm. have open houses. A lot yeah. of the farms will have open houses and special events. Just, yeah. you know, link up with them on their Facebook pages or their, or their websites and, and find mm-hmm. out, you know, what they're doing. And like one of the things we've done on our farm is to get more people on our farm. So we're part of Harvest Host, um, which are RV campers that come through. Um, we're part of Hip Camp. Uh, you can bring your tent here and you can camp on the farm. Um, you know, and then of course we have an Airbnb where people can stay. And what do we do with these people? When we talk about regenerative farming, when we talk about how important, you know, this, this is. Um, and a lot of times, you know, we, we can sell a little bit of meat and eggs and, and get them peaked. And then what we do is we send them on their way and we say, yes, there are regenerative farms in your area, you know, check out, check out where they're Mm -hmm. at and and support them. Cause every time you support that local farmer, 
you know, you're supporting your local economy too. Everything. So wonderful. So wonderful. It makes me just wish I lived in Kansas and could hang out with you guys all the time. But I'm going to just have faith that there's some some cool farmers in my area and and figure that out and get to know them. But um, is there anything else you you want to put out there before we close out today? No, I... I really enjoyed this conversation. I, you know, we're grateful for you inviting us onto it. And Thank you. yeah, I think just, you know, get your, get, get educated, make some changes in your diet and then go meet a farmer. Yeah. Thank you so much. You, I hope you get the sense of how truly, um, moving and impactful this conversation was for me personally. And I really, I hope that as many people as possible, listen to it and, um, get connected Um, to their food and to a farmer. And I appreciate you both so much. Thank you so much. Very much. 